your subscribed feeds are not being updated automatically because this setting is turned off. Turn on automatic feed updates you've successfully subscribed to this feed. Updated content can be viewed in Internet Explorer and other programs that use the common feed list. View my feeds. You've successfully subscribed to this feed. Captain's Quarters you are viewing a feed that contains frequently updated content. When you subscribe to a feed, it is added to the common feed list. Updated information from the feed is automatically downloaded to your computer and can be viewed in Internet Explorer and other programs. Learn more about feeds. Subscribe to this feed. Captain's Quarters today, November 26, 2007, 7 minutes ago. The Islamist plot to attack, Arizona? Today, November 26, 2007, 7 minutes ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com and more see the Washington Times serves up a nice, juicy slab of red meat to conservatives today with an expose of an Islamist plot to attack the U.S. through Mexico. According to Sarah Carter, Fort Huachuca had to change its security procedures after determining that radical Islamists had forges an alliance with Mexican drug cartels to attack it. The U.S. has detained Afghans and Iraqis in Texas after detaining them in connection to the plot. Fort Huachuca, the nation's largest intelligence training center, changed security measures in May after being warned that Islamist terrorists, with the aid of Mexican drug cartels, were planning an attack on the facility. Ford officials changed security measures after sources warned that possibly 60 Afghan and Iraqi terrorists were to be smuggled into the U.S. through underground tunnels with high-powered weapons to attack the Arizona Army base, according to multiple confidential law enforcement documents obtained by the Washington Times. A portion of the operatives were in the United States, with the remainder not yet in the United States, according to one of the documents an FBI advisory that was distributed to the Defense Intelligence Agency, the CIA, Customs and Border Protection and the Justice Department, among several other law enforcement agencies throughout the nation. The Afghanis and Iraqis shaved their beards so as not to appear to be Middle Easterners. Sixty foreign fighters wanted to attack Fort Huachuca? It would make a tempting target for both drug cartels and Islamist radicals to be sure. It houses the U.S. Army Intelligence Center and provides training for military intelligence units. The NCOA also trains the backbone of the Army, its non-commissioned officers. An attack on this base would make headlines around the world. The gist of the headlines would talk of a lunatic attack on a well-defended military installation, however. A force of 60 lightly armed men would have no chance of even taking out an equal number of people inside the base let alone having any effect on the operations within. The 54th Massachusetts had a better chance of taking Fort Wagner in the Civil War. That wouldn't have been the point of this attack, of course. It would have been intended to take the war once again to the American homeland. The Islamists would have used it as a propaganda victory, showing that the Americans could not keep themselves safe, let alone beat them abroad. It worked out a little differently. The U.S. learned of the plot and apparently took steps to detain some of its members. This action shows that the U.S. actually does a pretty good job of protecting the homeland, and can act against plots quickly when necessary. In fact, the story should result in considerable head-scratching over the motives of the drug cartels. Had the plot succeeded, 
the U.S. would have reacted swiftly and harshly to close down the southern border. Its vulnerability has already created a major political firestorm that would have destroyed the markets for these cartels. Could it be that the cartels played both sides of this plot in order to keep its access to American markets unfettered? SADR objects to debothification reform today, November 26, 2007, 30 minutes ago comments at CAPTAINSQUARTERSBLOG.com Ed Morrissey One of Congress' key reconciliation goals has finally getting attention from the Iraqi National Assembly, and it's playing into the hands of a familiar nemesis. The parliamentary bloc loyal to Mokada al-Sadr has resurrected itself in opposition to the reform of debothification, asserting that they want to see justice, not mercy, for members of the Saddam Hussein regime. A draft law that would ease restrictions on former members of Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath party, a measure seen by the Bush administration as crucial to national reconciliation, was presented in Parliament on Sunday for the first time. A powerful Shiite faction quickly objected to any moves to bring the Ba'athists back into government jobs, and a table-pounding argument erupted in the closed-door session, forcing postponement of the debate. In the wake of the 2003 U.S.-led invasion, thousands of members of the Sunni-dominated Ba'ath party were dismissed from military and government jobs, retaliation for years of persecuting Shiites. The proposed law would allow them to return to certain positions and collect pensions. Thousands have already managed to do so unofficially. If thousands have returned unofficially and it causes no great problems, then why push through legislation that seems designed to act as a provocation? The Iraqis already had a quiet resolution to the harsh bar on lower-level Ba'athists, one that worked as long as no one noticed it. Congress' demand for formal reform may set the cause back, and it may give Mokada al-Sadr a political boost just when he appeared morbid. The Kurds, who suffered at least as badly as the Shiites under Saddam, want mercy. The Kurdish representative to the debate noted that forgiveness is required for Iraq to unite, and the Kurds want the Sunnis integrated into Iraqi nationalism. The Sadrites want complete vengeance, and they want the Ba'athists barred from even the most meager of managerial positions in the government. They used an unfortunate example in their statement, not even a hospital manager, as two Shiite government ministers face trial for using hospitals to abduct and murder hundreds of Sunnis in the sectarian strife of 2006. The Sadrites do not run the Shiite majority in the National Assembly. However, they do have a significant block of those seats, and can make real trouble while the Shiites, Kurds, and Sunnis argue amongst each other. This is a moment when Nuri al-Maliki can act for unity rather than division, and put a stake through SADR's political heart. Lot to retire today, November 26, 2007, one hour ago comments at CAPTAINSQUARTERSBLOG.com Ed Morrissey a difficult season for the Senate Republican caucus just got tougher with the retirement of Trent Lott, the minority whip, at least in the short term. The four-term senator from Mississippi will leave the Senate at the end of the year, and the Republicans will have to scramble to ensure that they keep the seat in GOP hands. Senator Trent Lott of Mississippi, the Senate's number two Republican, plans to resign his seat before the end of the year, congressional and White House officials said Monday. Lott, 66, scheduled two news conferences in Pascagoula and Jackson later in the day to reveal his plans. According to the officials, 
who spoke on condition of anonymity ahead of the announcement, Lott intends to resign effective at the end of the year. No reason for Lott's resignation was given, but according to a congressional official, there is nothing amiss with Lott's health. The senator has other opportunities he plans to pursue, the officials said, without elaborating. Lott was re-elected to a fourth Senate term in 2006. Lott has had a rocky ride of late in the Senate. He had to resign as majority leader in 2002 after praising Strom Thurmond and asserting that Thurmond's Dixocrat segregationist platform could have benefited the U.S. had he been elected president in 1948. More recently, he lashed out at porkbusters who demanded answers to his prodigious earmarking. His ascent to party leadership last year created a firestorm of controversy about the message it sent regarding the direction of the Republican Party on ethics and spending issues. History may treat Lot more kindly than contemporaneous accounts. He served most of four terms as an effective party leader. After his departure from the majority leader seat, many felt that Bill Frist could not match Lot's infighting ability, which was sorely missed when judicial nominations bogged down in 2005. Still, Lott will most likely be remembered for his arrogance and his inability to adapt to the paradigms of open government in the Internet blogosphere era. He staunchly defended an old tradition of trading power and influence at a time when America finally started to see the costs inherent in those mechanisms. Lott could have led the Republicans to adapt to the new reality and become the vanguard of ethics reform and smaller government, but instead remained entrenched in the trappings of a vanishing era. When challenged, he lashed out instead of listened, and now he walks away with little credibility left. Governor Haley Barber will replace Lott, probably with Republican Chip Pickering, who recently announced his retirement from the House. A special election will be held in November to fill the rest of Lott's term, which runs to 2012. Pickering, a Lott protege, seems the likeliest choice, but unfortunately, Pickering doesn't represent an improvement. The Club for Growth report card shows Pickering's support for anti-pork measures at an embarrassing 2%, putting him at almost the bottom of Republican representatives for 2007. The names may change, but the policies won't. That may be Lot's legacy. The unbearable flexibility of Barrick today, November 26, 2007, two hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com and more see what happens when a candidate declares that he represents a different kind of campaigning one based on conviction rather than calculation? Usually calculation wins out, as Fred Hyatt notes in regard to Barack Obama. As the year has progressed, Obama appears a lot more flexible than he advertised. At heading right. I look at the beneficiaries of Obama's newfound flexibility, the NEA, the anti-war activists, and the trade protectionists, and marvel at the fortune that led his evolution as a candidate towards the complete spectrum of democratic special interests. So much for a campaign of conviction, eh? Bringing their own dimes today, November 26, 2007. Three hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com at Morrissey two years ago, we recommended that Republican donors withhold contributions to the party's congressional and Senate committees to send a message regarding their support for incumbents who didn't get the message about spending, judicial confirmations, and a wide variety of other issues of importance to Republican voters. While that effort was limited to 2005, the committees have seen their donations decrease ever since. 
Now they trailed the Democrats by significant margins, and they have begun to look for BYOD candidates, as in Bring Your Own Dime via Cap Q Reed or Mr. Morlock. Confronting an enormous fundraising gap with Democrats, Republican Party officials are aggressively recruiting wealthy candidates who can spend large sums of their own money to finance their congressional races, party officials say. At this point, strategists for the National Republican Congressional Committee have enlisted wealthy candidates to run in at least a dozen competitive congressional districts nationwide, particularly those where Democrats are finishing their first term and are thus considered most vulnerable. They say more are on the way. These wealthy Republicans have each already invested $100,000 to $1 million of their own money to finance their campaigns, according to campaign finance disclosure reports and interviews with party strategists. Experts say that is a large amount for this early in the cycle. In New York's 20th Congressional District, in the Albany area, Alexander Treadwell, an independently wealthy former state Republican Party chairman, has invested more than $320,000 of his money in a race that Republicans predict will cost each candidate at least $3 million. While Mr. Treadwell, the grandson of a founding executive of General Electric, plans to raise money from donors, he has privately told party officials that he is ready to invest more of his money to unseat Representative Kirsten Gillibrand, a freshman Democrat, Republicans close to him said. Both parties look for self-financing candidates, even if they don't like to admit it. The notion that this represents a remarkable transformation of the Republican strategy is hyperbolic. Even the Netroots do this. The endorsement of Ned Lamont had as much to do with his ability to spend his own money as it did with his positions in opposition to Joe Lieberman. Had Lamont not been able to finance his campaign, no one would ever have heard of him. However, the need for BYOD candidates should raise some flags with the Republicans. They should ask themselves why their fundraising has dropped so significantly, even after falling into the minority. Obviously, their message hasn't sold well. Why not? Could it be a lack of trust with Republican voters? The GOP had control of Congress for 12 years, six of those under a Republican president. Did the federal government shrink or grow? Did discretionary spending decrease or increase, even outside of war spending? Did federal authority contract or expand? Did pork barrel politics get opposed, or did Republicans wallow in the porcine lard? Republicans would love to support GOP candidates and return Congress to their control. Unfortunately, the continuing pork barrel politics and the not coincidental endorsement of bigger government reminds us that the Republicans still haven't learned their lesson as the veto override of the 50% pork water projects bill showed. Republicans want to support Republicans that act like Republicans, and when they start doing that, BYOD candidates won't be as critical to the party's success. The Turkish Laundry Today, November 26, 2007, three hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com at Morrissey The Times of London has an intriguing article today based on a series of interviews with a high-ranking al-Qaeda operative currently detained near Istanbul. Luai al-Sakr could be the biggest terrorist of which no one has heard, or an egomaniacal lunatic given to flights of fancy. If the former, he may hold the key to a number of AQ plots, including 9-11, and show how AQ uses Turkey as a terrorist laundromat via Mimi Random. 
Since being convicted as an Al-Qaeda bomb plotter last year, Saka has decided to reveal his alleged role in some of the key plots of recent years, providing a potential insight into the unanswered questions surrounding them. His story is also one of a globe-troding terrorist in an organization that is truly multinational. He is an enigma and, despite his involvement in three terrorist outrages involving British citizens, he is virtually unknown in this country. By his own account he is a senior al-Qaeda operative who was at the forefront of the insurgency in Iraq, took part in the beheading of Britain Kenneth Bigley and helped train the 9-11th bombers. He has been jailed in connection with the bombing of the British consulate in Istanbul. Certainly, the intelligence services have shown a keen interest in the 34-year-old Syrian who says he was in Iraq alongside Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the notorious insurgent who was killed last year in a United States airstrike. But, as with many things in the world of al-Qaeda, there might be smoke and mirrors. Some experts believe that Sackle could be overstating his importance to the group possibly to lay a false track for Western agencies investigating his terrorist colleagues. The latter could certainly prove true. After all, Saka doesn't have much left at risk, and the extent of his jihad now would be to misdirect Western intelligence and or spread propaganda. The media would make a particularly easy target for this kind of mission, much more credulous than Western intelligence agents that have learned how to differentiate Shinola from other substances. Still. The Turks know the Saka has connections to AQ through its independent investigations. Saka first came to their attention when his apartment exploded. They discovered all sorts of nasty projects in Saka's lab, including vats of hydrogen, plastic explosives, and bags of aluminum powder. It doesn't take a chemist to understand that Saka wanted to build a lot of bombs and they discovered that he intended to use them against Israeli cruise ships in attacks that closely resemble the attack on the USS Colin Aden. Saka provided the Times with a memoir of how he became a terrorist, and that in itself should prove instructive. Instead of being filled with rage over the infidels of the US or Israel, Saka became a radical after Syrian dictator Hafez Assad raised Hama and killed thousands of people including Saka's father to put down a rebellion from the Muslim Brotherhood. This blood vengeance could not get slicked in the Jihad of Bosnia, a jihad assisted by US and European troops, and so Saka went to Chechnya and eventually Pakistan. Not only did Saka begin recruiting jihadists from across the globe for AQ, but also became an expert forger. He regularly had recruits pass through Turkey so that he could alter their passports to remove any hint of their stay in Pakistan, which he knew would set off alarms in Western nations. He provided that service for some of the 9-11 hijackers, who had to rid themselves of their Pakistani ties to avoid detection by American security officials. Six of the hijackers, including one who may have piloted the plane that hit the Pentagon, took Saka's physical training in the mountains of Turkey. Most of these accounts have corroboration in international investigations. The 9-11 report does not mention Saka but it notes that a number of the 9-11 hijackers were bound for Chechnya until the Turkish-Georgian border closed in 1999. Saka trained many jihadists who went on to participate in a wide range of plots, and Saka has been convicted for his roles in those attacks and attempts in several countries. Saka's account shows how intricately this network has developed, and how resilient it could remain. The International Alliance Against AQ has to remain firm in its resolution to destroy it. 
If we let up, it can and will rebuild itself. Instead of assuming we are its cause, we should focus on becoming its end. Pakistani opposition ready for elections today, November 26, 2007, three hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com at Morrissey opposition figures Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif have thus far played coy about participating in the January 8 parliamentary elections. Although Bhutto told supporters she would decide on the elections last week, she has kept her options open. Sharif didn't rule out running for parliament either although his party had earlier called for boycotts. Both have now signaled willingness to participate by registering as candidates. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has filed nomination papers for the country's general elections, but insists he may boycott the poll. Mr. Sharif says he will not stand for election unless President Pervez Musharraf lifts the state of emergency. Benazir Bhutto has now filed papers for three parliamentary seats. There are signs that General Musharraf will step down as head of the army and be sworn in for another term as president this week. The next move rests with Musharraf. If he does not step down as army chief of staff, the boycott will almost certainly begin. If he does resign that post but keep the emergency order in place, Sharif and Buddha will likely call for the boycott, and for good reason. The PCO keeps them from campaigning in any effective manner. Assuming that the PCO gets lifted, the election should help clarify Pakistani politics. It will give a sense of the status of the people after over eight years of Musharraf's direct rule and years of exile for opposition leaders. That status may help the US and the West assess their options in dealing with the roots of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and analyze the options for working with the Pakistanis to eliminate them. Interestingly, while Sharif claimed that he cut no deal with Musharraf to return to Pakistan, news agencies report that Musharraf wants Sharif to take on Bhutto. Musharraf must have been taken aback by the massive outpourings of support for Bhutto on her return, and perhaps felt threatened by her political popularity. He may believe the best option is to have the two former exiles split the opposition to his party and his rule, and so perhaps Sharif may be telling the truth about making no deal for his return. He may just be what Musharraf believes he needs to keep the other two parties fighting with each other enough to keep him in power. Is Bill Poison in Iowa? Today, November 26, 2007, three hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com at Morrissey Bill Clinton has finally begun campaigning in Iowa, 16 years after he began running for president. Iowans appear to welcome him warmly on behalf of his wife. But Hillary's opponents have reminded them that when she takes credit for his successes, she has to take responsibilities for his failures as well. That formula forced Al Gore to keep Bill at arm's length in the 2000 race, and former Clinton official Donna Brazil says she knows why. Bill Clinton's shadow over the 2008 nominating race creates potential pitfalls for his wife and for her opponents. Hillary Clinton risks being seen as something other than her own candidate while her opponents risk offending Iowa Democrats who revere the former president. I think it's going to come down to, do you really want Bill Clinton back in the White House? Said Donna Brazil, who ran Democrat Al Gore's 2000 presidential campaign. The mixed reception of the Clinton White House is a far cry from four years ago, when the Democratic presidential candidates regularly cited the budget surplus, 
Job growth and relative global peace the Clinton administration left behind after eight years in office. Isn't it weird that four years ago they were campaigning on all the good that happened when we had a Democrat in the White House, and today they are regretting things that did or didn't happen because we had a Democrat in the White House, said Brazil, who is unaffiliated with any of the 2008 campaigns. You can have it both ways. The Democrats have tried it both ways and will have it both ways at the same time in 2008. The 2004 strategy didn't elevate a mediocrity to the White House, but Hillary has no choice but to use it for herself. Why else would anyone vote for her? She hasn't set the world on fire as a two-term senator, not exactly the best platform to launch a presidential career. The last senator who won a presidency was John F. Kennedy, who had almost twice as much time in Congress than Hillary. The rest of the field will use the 2000 strategy, again without much choice. None of the other frontrunners in the campaign have any experience on which they can run. Between the two of them, John Edwards and Barack Obama have as much national office experience as Hillary. They have no record on which to run, having been even less effective in their combined eight Senate years than Hillary in hers. They have to run against her assertions of experience. Democratic caucusing in Iowa will end up being a referendum on Bill Clinton. Is he revered or is he voting booth poison? Most Democrats will have him in the middle, closer to the former than the latter, most likely, but Brazil's question may be more complicated to answer. Iowans, and the rest of America's voters, may like Bill Clinton just fine, but do they want the Clintons back in the White House? Do they want a continuation of the Arkansas dynasty? I suspect not, and some of Hillary's negatives may come from this impulse. It may not yet have coalesced into a tangible issue, but it will get more specific as Hillary moves closer to the general election. American voters will wonder why the two major parties can't produce candidates other than Clinton's or Bush's, and Brazil's question will come to the forefront eventually. Back to SWA today, November 26, 2007. Three hours ago comments at captainsquartersblog.com at Morrissey the Pakistani military has committed ground troops to SWAT, where a Taliban insurgency had taken control of the first settled area. The army says it has severed enemy lines of communication and killed over 200 militants, and wrested control of mountaintops from the forces loyal to Maulana Fazlullah. If so, it represents the first major military action since Pervez Musharraf declared emergency ruling part to fight the radical Islamists. Pakistani troops have begun a major ground offensive against pro-Taliban militants in a former tourist resort in the northwest frontier province. Military officials say more than 200 militants have been killed in the past week, but there is no independent confirmation of those figures. A curfew has been imposed in the area around the Swat Valley about 160 kilometers 100 miles from Islamabad. Thousands of civilians are reported to have fled from the fighting. We've heard before that the army had launched offensives in the Swat region. We'll have to see whether this develops into a full-fledged offensive, or just a prelude to negotiations, as before. If the former turns out to be true, it will be the first good news from Pakistan in a month. Show all items. Displaying 9-20. All 20 new 9 sort by, list order date title author. Filter by category, 
2008-3 Europe 1 Film 1 International Politics 2 Iraq 1 National Politics 4 Pakistan 4 War on Terror 4 Mark Feed as Read View Feed Properties